everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amateur Hour. Welcome to the first episode of Amateur Hour. On this episode, I sit down with my friend Chidalu, and we talk about some high-level and low-level programming languages that some of you can get started with or move on to if you're looking for something new. Anyways, hey Chidalu. It's your boy Chidalu here. We're back with another episode of Amateur Hours. Today we'll be talking about choosing your first programming language. We understand this can be a bit of a difficult decision, but you know, with our help, we hope you know that after after listening to this podcast, you will be able to go out into the real world and choose your very first programming language. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god! Okay. You know what? No, we'll just start it off cold, bro. Okay, Chidalu, introduce yourself, man. Yo, what is up, guys? My name is Chidalu. <laughs> oh, my God. And you're listening to the first episode of Amateur Hours, where two amateurs in the field of software engineering will be discussing things we probably don't know Speaking anything about. about. Yourself, bro. Oh, yeah, Speaking okay. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Chidalu Balqua. I've been um, programming for about, you know, a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the hence the name Amateur Hours. Uh, I'm a second year software engineering student at York University, uh, Toronto, Ontario, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, so I've known Chidalu about two years now, and I have to say, you are the fastest turnaround in terms of don't know how to write an if statement to writing basic services, and like I I have never seen that in my entire life. One year from mechanical engineering to software <laughs> engineering. Wow. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, like back, I think it was freaking back in like, let's say here, September 2018, where I wrote my first if statement, my first for loop. And since Do you remember then, what language that was in? Uh, oh, MATLAB. Oh, don't even Why get me. You just explain to the listeners. Um, your first experiences in programming and just specifically in MATLAB. So back in the day, I was a, a mechanical engineering student and I really thought my first programming language would be my last. So I didn't really care. And so, you know, it, I just didn't read my textbooks. I wasn't studying. I wasn't learning and I wasn't understanding my material. And I struggled to write a basic for loop. I struggled to sum up all the integers in an array. Like I couldn't do it. And, um, you know, time and practice and, and effort helped me um, write a for loop. And here I am. Here I am a year later. So do you believe that if you were still writing MATLAB today, that you would be into software development like you are right now? MATLAB just... In of interest? It was that first programming language that took away all my hope. Like, I didn't want to program because of that. I, I just don't like MATLAB. Like, and they're replacing it with <laughs> Python. So that's so much better for us. Yeah, it was a first year course. Yeah, yeah, it was just to introduce us to uh, basic programming, uh, how to interact with some sensors, mm-hmm. with a little bit of embedded systems. Mm-hmm. This is no bash to MATLAB, though. I believe that MATLAB is a powerful language. It has definitely, its place in definitely. statistics, and you can even do some computer vision stuff with it. Yeah, but, but you start your indexes at one. Like, who does that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Who does that? <laughs> oh, yeah. But the programming language you learned right after that which one was it and how do you feel about it and how have you stuck with it yeah so the programming language you learned right after that which a lot of other schools also learn is java and you know java is actually like one of the most popular programming language programming languages that you know we have in the world today and it is i found it a lot 
easier to kind of navigate through and understand than MATLAB. I think the community for Java is much bigger than MATLAB. And there's a lot of instructional videos online to, you know, help you learn. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Has anybody ever asked you, you know, what should be my first programming language? Has um, anybody ever, like, somebody that just wants to get into programming or maybe somebody like you who went from mechanical to software engineering in the span of, like, six months? Yeah. Like, if I had to turn back the clocks right now and, like, somebody, like, uh, if I was, like, say, five years younger, I was, like, 14, and I asked my future self right now, what should I choose to be my first programming language? I would probably say, have to say, and I think Ruben would agree with me on this, I would have to say Python. I'd have to say it. <laughs> like Python, huh? Oh yeah. What Ruben, what would you if you had to talk to your past self, what would you tell your past self on a programming language? Oh, I would first? be I would be terrible with myself. So my first programming language, like my first hello world was in C. Disgusting. And it was a nightmare. Disgusting. I would probably I would probably go back in time and tell myself to continue doing C. To continue doing C? Do Java. Yeah. Why? Because I feel like you just understand how to program better if you can go through the hardships of c there is no garbage collector in c memory allocation is all you i mean the problem just becomes twice as hard when you do something in c definitely i mean and i think it just starts you off on a better base definitely yeah. definitely i mean like you're telling me that if you had to talk to your 14 year old self on a programming language to choose first you would tell your 14 year old self choose c I, you know what? Yeah, sure. I like to torture myself. That, that's that's good. crazy. No, I, I like the easy way out. Personally, I would tell myself to <laughs> choose Python. Yeah, so a lot of people ask me that question, you know, what should be my first programming language? And a lot of people in industry do get asked that question, too. And you kind of get two different answers. One answer being pick one programming language. Mm -hmm. And just stick with it. Definitely. Learn how to do control statements. Learn how to make methods. Learn how to do, I don't know, things in recursion. Learn how to write idiomatic code. Ooh, we did a word there, idiomatic. Idiom what does that even mean? Idiomatic. So this is a, sec uh, a little segment on the podcast we're going to call. I don't know. What should we call this? Should we call it buzzwords? Buzzwords. Buzzword, wow but... moments. Search that up right now, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. You know what? We're just going to roll with buzzwords. So idiomatic. Idiomatic code. Idiomatic means more or less writing code in the way of that language mm -hmm. that's expressive to that language. Like what's an example of idiomatic code in Python? For example, in Python, when you want to, let's say you have an array of numbers in Python yeah. and you want to increase all the numbers in that array by mm -hmm. one. So how would you do it and how many lines would you take? Um... Probably one for so you would have, couple you lines. would have one line for the definitely. Array. You would have yeah. So you would have one array with the numbers, and then you would you might have another array that's empty, mm -hmm. and then you would have a for loop where you would loop through the original array, and at each index of that original array, the new array would have the element of the original array at that mm -hmm. index plus one. Okay, so we're looking at maybe five lines of code. Yeah. Four or five lines of code, let's say. That is not idiomatic Python. <laughs> idiomatic Python is 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 using the design pattern of that language, kind of using the tools that that language has built in, probably in the standard mm -hmm. library, to get it down to 
a way that it looks pythonic. You've heard this word before. Python. Yeah, like they take they they right. they turn programming language into just like English. One line. They can yes, you probably yes. do it in one line. There is a way to get that specific operation that we were just talking about, increasing the array of and full of integers by one into two lines. Yeah, Think about it, Chidali. You have one array where you have the original numbers. And then you know those those for loops that can go within an array that you write within a list yeah. and assign it to the array at the yeah. same time. So that's like two lines of code right there. That is an example of idiomatic code. I can probably find an example of that and put it into the show notes for people who are so obviously confused at what I'm Definitely. talking about. Uh, especially if you haven't written Python and you haven't seen the simplicity of it. What I'm gonna what I'm saying to you is um, is really wacky. But for example, Rust, a popular programming language. Uh, made by Mozilla. We're going to talk about it a little bit. It has its own design patterns of doing stuff. So much, in fact, that there's actually a repository of common Rust design patterns and how to implement mm -hmm. them a little later. Yeah, so I found there's a there's a, a GitHub organization called Rust Unofficial. Mm -hmm. They have a repository called Patterns. And um, they put different types of design patterns for different Rust programs that are video, very idiomatic toward that mm -hmm. language. So now that we've got that out of the way, we're going to, me and Chidola are going to kind of go through the most popular programming languages and kind of go through the scratcher itch methodology of picking a programming language. Now I spoke before that, you know, people, when they recommend what programming language to start with, they just say, pick one, start with it, learn everything about it. And stick with it. Write idiom idiomatic code yeah. in that language. Yeah, just stick with it. Yeah. The other side to that argument is pick a programming language that will scratch your itch or pick a programming language that will allow you to do what made you want to get into programming exactly. in the first place. For example, if, if what you wanted to do was make websites, you should probably pick a programming language that's good at making web applications and websites. If you want to make video games, you should probably pick a programming language that allows you to make yep. video games or very or good video games or the video games that you exactly. want to make. So we're going to kind of go through uh, different high level programming languages one by one and talk about the different types of things that we've done in them, things that you can do in them and things that we might be exploring in future episodes yep. in the future. Okay. So first up, we talked about this yeah. language already. It's a language that me and you have done all of our undergraduate program. I did it for two years in yeah. high school. And before that, when I was, uh, I used it for writing uh, programming competitions that the University of Waterloo uh, hosted. It's called the CCC. Now this programming language, one of the most popular programming languages in the world, it boasts that it runs on what, what is it? 3 billion devices? It runs know, on every like, device. A, more than a billion devices. Runs on almost, almost every, device. every device used at almost every company like Google, big banks, huge software corporations. This language is called Java. You've probably heard of it if you've played Minecraft. Minecraft because is Minecraft is was written, written in, in this language. Minecraft is written in Java. So Java is what we call an example of a statically typed language. Whoa, buzzword. Another buzzword. 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 Another buzzword. So there's a difference. There's two main types of languages. There's statically and dynamically typed languages. Now, 
I really hope uh, the, the viewers, or sorry, the listeners have done one of these languages to recognize mm -hmm. the difference. Something like Java is what we call a statically typed language. Something like Python, JavaScript. Ruby, I don't know, JavaScript. Yeah, the JavaScript is a popular one. Are an example of what we called dynamically typed languages. And what that basically means is that if you want to declare the type of a variable, how is it done in your programming language? Now, Jadal, how do would if I wanted to declare an integer variable yep. in Java, how would yeah, I? Yeah. So since then, Java is statically typed. You have to declare the type of um, variable you want to use at compile time. And compile time is basically before you click that run button on the program, all your variables have to be declared with their data types. That's the meaning of basically a statically typed um, like programming language. So if I want to have a variable, let's say a, and give it the value of six, what should I do on Java? Yeah, you pretty much just type int a um, equals six with a semicolon. So what int is that int? is a data type in Java and it's represents a 32 bit number. Um, that's another, probably another buzzword that we have to explain for those viewers at home <laughs> that don't know what, you know, bits and stuff like that are, but yeah, you basically just have to declare that at compile time before you hit that run button on your program. And that's how you declare a whole number, a whole number, an integer in Java. Yeah. In Java. But Chidal, how would I Python? You pretty much just type a equals six. And the Python interpreter will know as it runs through line by line of your code that that variable a is an integer. Now there's a little lot of um, different architectural decisions that the creators of those languages made to make them dynamically and statically typed. For example, people I'm coming from Java, writing Python is just so, so, a so lot easier, easy. Definitely. Not having to write int and string and char for characters on every line that I declare a variable is yep. it saves me so much time. However, of course, your program does run slower because the compiler is trying to figure out what data type that language is at compile time, not before. Definitely. Let's, let's just talk about some different things that Java can actually do for us. So let's just talk about first, what have we done with Java other than just making if statements, trying out loops, doing different algorithms, solving <laughs> data structures, problems, mm -hmm. <laughs> on code and hacker grind. <laughs> so what have we really done with Java? And our yeah. Language? So me personally, like one of the first things that I was introduced to and how I learned Java was probably making a game of snake. Everybody knows the popular snake game where you are a snake and as you eat like items on the screen, you grow bigger with, with the exactly Nokia. Playing all, all okay. the old devices, you know, with yeah. Java, making a program like program like that is relatively simple. And, um, as one of the first things I was introduced to, to learn the language of Java and, uh, Ruben, what was one of the first things you did, um, to you know, in Java. One of the first applications would probably be a REST API, like first application mm -hmm. other outside of the space of, you know, algorithms and stuff. It was probably a REST API. Ooh, buzzword, buzzword. Actually, we're not going to cover APIs and RESTful APIs. So all yeah, probably do another episode. episode. Mm -hmm. We'll probably do it in a later episode. That needs an entire, I don't know, 45 minute run. Definitely. That thing alone. 
So you can actually, there's a great framework for making REST mm. APIs. It's called Java Spring. So any viewer who wants to use Java, make a RESTful API, maybe for their website, for their mobile application, some kind of server side API or client side API, um, I would highly look into, recommend looking into Spring. Another thing that we've actually done this semester, it's currently happening right now, we're in a project with it, is using Java to build yep. desktop applications. And here's the cool thing about Java. Java is pretty easy to use when making cross-platform mm -hmm. desktop applications. Cross-platform is the thing that a lot of developers have to take into consideration because not everybody is running on Windows, sadly. <laughs> so you need to make sure that your desktop application is usable on all the platforms that you know you want your users to be on. So Java is for certain architectural reasons that we might not get to this episode. We'll probably talk about Java in its own episode, you know, mm -hmm. about the great things about it and about just object-oriented programming in general. But to make desktop applications, Java Swing, but lately yep. Java FX. Java FX has been the way that you make high-quality yep. desktop applications. Me and Shadalu are actually in a course right now where we're making um, a desktop application with JavaFX, learning about different um, design patterns like MVC, model another buzzword. Woo, buzzword, buzzword. We'll go into design patterns in another episode. Exactly. That's going to take too much time. I feel that every language also needs to take this into consideration when you're choosing it. It's yeah. dependency uh, management. Oh, there's another buzzword, dependency management. Let's talk about that. What is um, dependency? A dependency is basically at something that your program depends on to run. Like if you were to grab another library that somebody else made and import it into your program, that would be considered a dependency, you know? Right, right. So for example, if you wanted your Java effects mm -hmm. to have a certain look and feel, you might have found scouring GitHub that some guy has made a specific color theme for your Java effects buttons. So you would need to manually import that into your uh, Java effects project and to yep. apply those buttons. Now to automatically manage dependencies and everything for our course, we are using Gradle. Gradle is for automatic building, dependency management. We'll talk about those, those buzzwords in another episode, but Maven is also a good choice for those who are looking into it's, Java it's, yep, it's definitely something important. like that. I want to talk about a very popular thing that Java does that I don't think me and you have done too much, but a lot mm. of people have chosen Java for it. And that is yep. Android app development. Google has a software mm. called Android Studio. And it's a, so it's a desktop software where you can make Android apps and you would code these apps in Java. Or now recently they have another programming language that's a little more geared to, to app development. It's called, called Kotlin. It's, kind of like a spin-off of Java. I'm going to be honest. I don't know that much about it. I've written a couple of lines in it. Anyways, we've talked about Java for a little bit. We're going to move on to a language that me and Jadalu have used pretty extensively outside of Java. It, it, it is our, you know, our dynamically typed mm -hmm. language of choice. And it is Python, the, the giant, one of the most popular programming Definitely. languages in the world, I guess. 
So Chidal, let's just talk about some things that you have done in Python and kind yeah, of Python, Python. I pretty much just got it started by, you know, uh, making short scripts for your computer that that can automate tasks that would take you a long time to do manually just by doing programming. Like say, for example, automate Isn't the boring the stuff with book? Python. That is actually a great book um, to read. Oh, yeah. Yes. Definitely, shout out, definitely. Shout out automate. automate the if you want to begin to go on a Python journey, automate the boring stuff by Python. Um, was one of the first books I read to teach me about you know Python development, and it's by actually it's by um, a book by Al um, Swigert. Ho- hopefully, I got that last name right. But yeah, we'll put in the show notes. Um, we'll so yeah, basically, I got started by taking a bunch of tasks that I would or a normal person would do manually and automate it by with by Python. Like say, for example, um, you have to manipulate a bunch of numbers in Excel and you have to say, do a, bo- a, do a boring repetitive task, like copy one number under another number and do this all manually. Well, with Python, with just like a couple lines of Python code, maybe less than 50 lines, you could write a script that would automate all those Excel functions for you and do that all for you. So that, that, that was one of the first things I did with Python. What about you, Ruben? Python, honestly, is my language just to do anything yeah. really quick. For Yeah, so Excel, um, if I want to you know, extract something from an Excel document really quickly, non-repetitive, I would use Python. If I want to yeah, definitely scrape scraping. some data off a website, I remember I, I, a lot of people yep. like making sneaker bots with uh, Python, you know, collecting sneaker data. Mm-hmm. That's something that I like to do myself. <laughs> um, it's just, I feel that Python has such a diverse community and such a diverse set of use cases for that language. You can do any everything from web scraping to file manipulation to, to REST get- APIs to robotics to making, you can make desktop applications to games, yeah. Uh, Pygame, yeah, for making games Pygame? and Tinkter for making desktop applications. But Python is a titan it's a monster monster data science yeah data science and machine Mm -hmm. learning python dominates so much so that huge corporations like facebook even make um machine learning libraries specifically for python Mm -hmm. pytorch being the example i think google has uh tensorflow there's so many machine learning packages libraries and support on the internet for everything, data science, machine learning, computer vision. OpenCV is great with Python. In just a couple of lines, you can get a facial recognition software working on your computer. It's one of Definitely. probably one of the greatest things about the language. It's so simple to write. Sometimes I do feel like I'm writing pseudocode or fake code, code exactly. that's not really going to compile. <laughs> that's a buzzword right there. <laughs> but it's just, it's so nice for people working in a collaborative environment too. Because if I write Pythonic, idiomatic Python code, and I hand it off to Chidalu, he will most likely understand what I'm doing, unless what I'm doing is very much outside Definitely. the scope of what Python is used for. I probably wouldn't recommend Python making 3D games. I think mm-hmm. there's just so many better options with that. Python is pretty good also for another buzzword. Ooh, buzzword. Microservices. We're going to have a whole episode on that. We're going to talk about some more languages that are good for writing quick microservices. But for those of you who are looking for a language just to write 
uh, quick microservices, I would look into Flask. I would look into Python. Yep. Very easy to get a simple REST API set up with that. I'm going to talk about another language that's sort of like Python and has a huge cult following, I would feel, has some respect in the industry. It's also dynamically too much. typed. Me yeah, not too much. Done, I don't think you've done any of it, but it, mm -hmm. it's called Ruby. Now, Ruby is, um, I hear it's actually the, the language that Shopify writes a lot of their back-end uh, architecture in, a lot of their APIs. I think I heard the founder of Shopify say something like, he decided to write the entire back-end architecture of Shopify when Shopify was just yep. starting out. It was just him and another person, I believe, in Ruby, because he felt that Ruby was a beautiful language. Now, Ruby was made... I think, oh, sure. when was Ruby Let's made? See. Can you just search that up for me? It was made in the 1990s he... by Yukihiro Matsumoto, or AKA Mats. In the mid-1990s, yeah. Mats, M-A-T-Z. Okay, okay. So he really geared to Ruby toward making yeah, programming exactly. on Ruby fun. That is like the whole hook and sinker of that language it is it's kind of fun to work in ruby the difference between python and ruby there's a lot of articles and videos that outline this that people feel that python in python there's one correct way of doing something but in ruby there is six or seven or multiple different ways of doing something now this leads to a lot of this is a really hot topic with developers on which one is the right way but if you are looking for a fun programming language that is dynamically typed. Um, I would very much suggest Ruby. If you want to make REST APIs or some backend architecture, I would recommend Ruby on Rails. Mm -hmm. It's a very popular web framework and a lot of companies use it. There's a lot of support for it on the internet. Another interesting thing that I actually found out while doing research about Ruby is that there's actually a package and a library for what? robotics. With no Ruby. way. Yeah, it's called R2. Like, it's kind of named after, okay, I think, okay. R2 from Star Wars, R2-D2. And it's a, it, I, the link is in the show notes. I think that's pretty cool. I think that just shows how committed people are to expanding the diversity of applications mm -hmm. that Ruby can be used in. Okay, next we're going to talk about our final um, dynamically typed language. Our final dynamic type language that we're going to talk about is JavaScript. And we're going to kind of segue into TypeScript, which is not a dynamically typed language at okay. all. That's the whole point of its existence. Tell me about <laughs> tell JavaScript me about your experiences with JavaScript. At the beginning, wanted to make me pull my hair out. Because coming from writing in Java, <laughs> um, you know, Java is a very fixed language. It's very structured. Um, and coming to JavaScript with all the weird brackets and and dynamically typing and saying let this equal that, it makes me want to pull my hair out. But I've now realized that learning JavaScript is inevitable. It's like Thanos. You just can't avoid it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's inevitable. Every and job you, posting you you'll, like see, you'll see, you'll um, see one of the requirements is JavaScript. And so that's why I've began on my journey to, you know, get better at learning JavaScript. Have, have you started I've, learning? Um, been have doing the Code Academy Pro course on web development, where they walk you through building a whole web application in JavaScript, um, Node.js, uh, MySQL, from the back end to the front end, and React too. And so, yeah, 
basically been on my journey to learning JavaScript, it's really, it's really is inevitable language. You just can't avoid it. It's the most popular programming language in the world used by developers. And, you know, <laughs> according to the 2019 Stack Overflow survey, so. We'll actually link that survey. Um, and we're going to kind of refer back to that survey when we talk about all the programming languages and which ones developers are most happy with and uh, which ones, I don't know, get paid the most money, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure some people are interested, interested about. about I know we're interested about it. Here's my theory on why JavaScript is inevitable. I kind of agree with your theory. And it's because JavaScript is kind I of guess. a Swiss army knife of programming languages. So we're kind of exploring the, the yep. concept of scratch your itch, right? If you want to make games, you should you should uh, pick a programming language language that can allow you to make games. JavaScript is this one language that you can pretty much everything almost do everything. Because if you want to, yeah, if you want to make a website, you know, JavaScript is pretty essential to website development, animations, color changes, button clicks. Um, if you want to make some server architecture, some backend mm -hmm. architecture with it. No JS exists. If you want to do data structures and algorithms problems on lead code, JavaScript is is yep is very much there for you and can handle that. Heavily supported web frameworks like Vue, Angular. Like if you're a kid and you just want to learn JavaScript to help your dad make his bakery website, I recommend you pick up a good JavaScript book or a good JavaScript video, and dive in. Yeah, yeah. If you want to make a mobile app, React Native exists. Now, React Native, React Native versus Flutter episode on itself there is. because there's a lot of drama with it <laughs> versus Flutter. There's a lot of drama with it. Uh, we'll probably get into that a lot later in the episodes. But here's what I like about React Native. Making mobile applications for iOS devices is yep. not accessible unless you have a Mac. We'll talk about Swift and Objective-C a little later, not too much in detail, but if you are on a Windows you know, laptop and want to make up, yep. um, an iOS app, yeah, a native with native code, it's kind of, it's, it's, you're very limited to options. You can use something like Apache Cordova. You can use the Ionic framework, but I would highly recommend just because of its support yep. and user community, the React native framework where you can use React it's not, I don't think it's full-fledged React. It's different to React in the same ways. React.js, which is, um, yep. I think it was created and it's still maintained by Facebook. React Native is actually kind of created and maintained by Facebook. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think we'll, so. we'll fact check that. I don't know. We'll fact check that and we'll leave the link description in the show notes. But JavaScript is the only way that you can use a Windows laptop realistically and, and make an iOS application and an Android application at the same time. That cross-platform yeah, really part of it is just, I think is so great. And React Native with its prototyping tools and, and Expo. Expo hasn't been working great for me <laughs> recently. Anyways. Yeah, it really does. We'll, we'll, React Native deserves its own episode, I feel. If you want to make desktop applications yeah, in, in JavaScript, that exists too. You can use the Electron electron framework to make just desktop applications and just like java like the java effects applications we were talking about these electron desktop applications can be um cross-platform they can yep. work on mac uh, linux and windows and just with one mm -hmm. single code base and i think that's incredible 
Yeah, and also if you want to do games, there's frameworks like Phaser Three. There's WebGL. Yeah. There's honestly, me and Shadalu have done nothing. Like, when if you are a game developer topics, and you're listening to this, kudos to you. Like, those things. hats off, straight up. Like, hats off. I can't even wrap yeah, my just, head around creating games. I'm, I'm doing all the physics and all the all the logic behind games. It's just oh. like I was looking at graphics vectors and color oh. vectors. Like, if you're a game developer, I I was if you want to go into game development, you're you are it a was, trooper. You are a you're a monster. You good, good job for you. Wow. <laughs> it's a tough road ahead. Yeah. And JavaScript, as we said before, it's a dynamically typed language. However, there is a, I'd say a spinoff, a very popular spinoff of JavaScript called TypeScript. Chidal, can you see on that Stack TypeScript, Overflow survey definitely. what people are kind of saying about um, TypeScript? One of the most, the third most loved programming language in 2019 was TypeScript, loved by 73.1% of developers. Um, and yeah, that just pretty much speaks for itself, to be honest. I mean, if developers like something, we complain a lot. Developers complain a lot. We complain about things we love. We definitely complain about things we hate. But if we like something, you know it's probably good. So TypeScript is basically JavaScript with a lot of added yeah, extra please. stuff that probably deserves its own episode, but it adds static, a statically typed architecture. It's a statically typed language and it has stuff like classes and interfaces that are very Definitely. familiar for it's people who are coming from Java backgrounds. Of JavaScript basically. When, uh, and I think that's what, yeah. And I think it's just, things that JavaScript developers have been asking for a while. And in 2012, when they finally made TypeScript Definitely. and people picked it up and it's really been in use nowadays. Uh, a lot of companies have switched their stack over to uh, TypeScript. Ooh, I said stack, buzzword. We'll probably talk about the developer stack in uh, our coming up episode. This thing's running a little long. Yep. So we'll probably come back to that later. But TypeScript, if you are already into JavaScript a lot and you want to, and you notice some design flaws with the language itself, I would highly encourage checking out TypeScript. A lot of people swear by it. So uh, I, yeah, I would highly recommend checking out TypeScript. Next up, C-sharp. So C sharp and me have a little bit of a weird relationship. I have never made, I've, I've worked on C-sharp. I worked with C-sharp for about, I think six months or something. And I never made something that was really production ready. So maybe I just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because I don't know how to write good idiomatic C-sharp or working C-sharp. But C-sharp is an object-oriented object programming oriented. language. Definitely. That's a buzzword. We'll talk about object-oriented programming languages and <laughs> that deserves its own episode. And, but it can be used for a lot of different things. If you want to make a REST API in C-sharp, I highly, recommend looking into .NET. I'd recommend looking into Blazor. So Blazor, it'll be in the show notes, is um, it's a web framework that allows developers to, you know, we, you can create web applications with C Sharp and, and HTML and, and CSS. Another thing that which I originally got yep. into C Sharp for was Unity. Now, some people might know the Unity game engine some people have very big problems with the Unity game engine. I am one of those people. I am. I just don't know how to make good <laughs> programs with Unity. I admit that. 
But um, if you are looking into using the Unity game engine, uh, yeah. I would really highly recommend uh, picking up C Sharp. Actually, wait, I feel oh, that Unity that. has an option to write JavaScript. Yeah, I'm going to have to fact check that, but I think it's called Unity Script. If you want to look into the Unity engine and you want to do game development with that, mm -hmm. I would highly recommend looking into Unity Script or C Sharp. Okay, next up, let's stick with the C's, the C language here. My We're going to talk about the C language <laughs> and C++. So before we actually get into this, and I asked Chidolu about C, I just want to let my you know, Chidolu, that my younger brother is learning C++. He's learning C++. I found him at 4 o'clock yesterday night learning C++. <laughs> I, yeah, I want to just talk a little bit, a bit about C and C++ and its kind of use in robotics. So my brother... Um, he mainly got into C++ because he's into robotics, he's into cars, he wanted to make some some driving systems with C and C++ language. So that's why he's doing it. Uh, robotics and uh, embedded systems, if yep. you want to go into the Internet of Things, make small devices like that, use microcontrollers, microprocessors, I would very, very much recommend getting into a low-level language like C a high level language like C++. Back to the game developers. I, we're really catering to the game developers Our here. Monsters, titans. You guys, you, are, guys are you guys are exactly. You guys are programming titans. gods. There we go. <laughs> the Unreal Engine. The Unreal Engine. I, I What games have been made with the Unreal Engine? I know a lot of games. Epic Games uses the Unreal exactly. Engine. Exactly. Oh, okay. Most Fortnite. popular game Everybody of knows Fortnite. 2019, one of the most popular. <laughs> most, yeah. <laughs> That was, yep. it's a, it's it's it uses C plus plus, so if you're looking into the Unreal Engine, you're gonna end up learning C plus plus. If you're looking into robotics again, robotics embedded systems, look into the ROS, robotics operating system. I believe it has some some capability, some compatibility with Python, mm -hmm. but it's very much used with C plus plus. C plus plus also has a lot of machine vision. Um, there's a lot of machine learning libraries with C++ too, just because of how fast it is as a language. It's just such an efficient Definitely. Um, language when it comes to performance. But of course, it does come with its drawbacks, being that it's very yeah, difficult. It was a bit of a learning curve. To learn. Not too At bad for coming to from Java, but you know, C is very similar. Yeah. Well, Java was right. based off C. Just it took all its flaws and made it better, and that's why people love Java. Tadalu, just let me get your thoughts on this. Imagine a 15-year-old yep. kid is coming from Python to C. I think he's going to have a hard time with the legendary error segmentation fault. Segmentation <laughs> Basically fault. running into memory oh, that you man. don't have. I, I don't not managing your memory that. properly. That's what, <laughs> that's what runs you into a segmentation fault error. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to need to have an episode just about garbage collection. Uh, yeah, because all, all Python's memory is managed, but in C, you're going to have to manage yeah, it all yourself. Take a whole other episode. And it's... Yeah, we just spit out <laughs> a lot of buzzwords there, but hopefully we didn't, we didn't turn anybody off. Yeah. Okay, we're going... So C is a pretty low-level language, I guess. We're going to go further than that. We're going to go our, to... Basically, yeah, basically my Chidalu's arch nemesis. It made me cry, like... Maybe, Oh, no, no. Basically, is it your art Like, at this point, we're almost at language. zeros and ones here. Almost. At, almost at machine level. Assembly is basically 
the step up to machine yeah. level mm-hmm. programming. That's another buzzword, you know, because machines. We'll, we'll talk about it later episodes. We're running a bit long here, but yeah, assembly is a pretty darn low level language, and that's what that's what makes it so fast, so easy to run for computers. I would highly recommend Netflix Explained. Um, Netflix has a has a docu series called Explained where they have an episode on coding and they actually explain assembly language and high level languages and the difference between languages and how languages can be built off each other pretty well. So I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in assembly language to, or just languages in general and how computers work to go look at that documentary. If you have Netflix, (laughs) which I'm pretty sure you guys are all doing since we're in quarantine. So for some computer engineers and electrical engineers out there that are looking into, you know, making processors, they want to design GPUs. Mm-hmm. I would look into getting into a hardware definition language where basically you can simulate and um, synthetically in software define things like AND yep. gates, OR gates, um, arithmetic logic units, um, multiplexers and all the, the these components that are used to make CPUs and GPUs. I would read more into that if you're somebody who wants to get into CPU, GPU, or computer, computer um, component design. I would look into a language like Verilog and lo- learning assembly language. So when we did a course on these two topics, we learned I- Icarus Verilog or iVerilog. Yeah, assembly and uh, RISC-V architecture. RISC-V is that, is that, is that um, specific to York or do other people use that too? Um, no, yeah. it's a, actually, you know, the um, Nintendo GameCube okay, okay. and the N64? That was UC CPUs Berkeley. are made in the RISC-V architecture. UC Berkeley? Or it's not, sure. I don't think it's RISC-V. I think it might be just the RISC. It's not, yeah. it's different to the architecture sets that Intel and AMD use, obviously. But, you know, if you feel that you can make a CPU that's better than Intel and AMD and you have the kind of knowledge and you want to simulate a, a CPU or definitely, GPU definitely. that you want to make, I would very much look into something like Verilog. Um, there's obviously a lot of different types of hardware definition languages. It's just that me and Shadalu don't know them and yeah. we don't necessarily want to go any further. It's, not my, it's not my piece of pie. <laughs> it's I would, just not I things uh, that get we into that. like to be doing too much. <laughs> Okay, we're going to talk about two yeah. languages that are relatively new to the software world uh, compared to C or something like Java, or even Python. I feel like Python was made in the 90s or 2000s or something. We're going to talk about Go and Rust. So Go, it's a language that was made at Google. Google wanted to make a, a language that they felt was a, a, a high-level language that drew from all the best parts of things like C++ and C and Java. And the reason why I kind of trust Go, I know a lot of people, some people don't like Go because of its certain design architectural choices that the language has, but Go has credentials. The people that made Go were the makers of C, Unix, Actually, one of the creators of Go contributed heavily to the Java virtual machine, the JVM, which is one of the most engineered pieces of software probably of all time. 
Like that thing is efficient. That thing is efficient. So that's Go. Go is, um, I'm currently learning Go right now. Um, it's, it can be used for a lot of different things. Two of the, two of the uses that I'm kind of exploring right now is uh, microservices. Again, there's that buzzword. Um, kind of also writing web applications with it. <laughs> and um, also it can be used for embedded systems. Um, there's actually a spin-off of Go called Tiny Go, which puts Go into a smaller size and makes it executable smaller. So it can be run on microprocessors, microcontrollers, that kind of stuff. So Go is a language that a lot of popular software like <laughs> Kubernetes. Oh my gosh, there's the word Kubernetes and container orchestration yep. will come to that word. Yeah, exactly. Very, very late episode. I don't think we can explain that one just yet. Rust, Rust is another programming languages. It was, it was actually made by Mozilla. Now Rust is something that I've kind of wanted to get into too, just because of its, of a lot of things that people are doing with Rust and WebAssembly. WebAssembly needs its own, own episode. Mozilla made Rust. It's a, it's a pretty good language. It's people, I was actually on a stream yesterday with Brian Kettleson. I wasn't on the stream. I was watching him. And he was working with Rust. He was making some WebAssembly applications. And him, and I can't remember the friend he was with, but I asked him on the stream, Go versus Rust. His friend replied, him and Brian replied, um, Go is pretty good for writing short hmm. microservices, uh, you know, RESTful APIs. When the application or the service that you're writing in Go gets a little too big, something like Rust is a lot better because and I think this is one of the main faults that Go has. It's its dependency management's, its techniques for dependency management are just not that great. It's a problem. It's probably the Achilles heel of that language. And here's what I mean. If you have a simple dependency tree, if you have a simple amount of packages, simple number of packages that you want to import for your project in Go, it's okay. Once you start getting into complicated stuff, it gets very, very messy, very quick. Where something like Rust with Cargo, which is its dependency management uh, tool, is very efficient at it. NPM, the node package manager with uh, JavaScript, very efficient at it. PIP, which is the Python uh, dependency management tool, very efficient. I would consider it very efficient. I haven't had any problems with any of those uh, languages in there dependency management tools. So that's um, Rust. Rust is really used for bare metal systems. We'll talk about bare metal systems probably in a later episode. I honestly wouldn't recommend Rust for beginners, but there's something interesting about Rust. Rust is the most loved programming language, loved by 83.5% of the developers who use it. I don't get how that's a thing. Rust, is, like it looks difficult. Yeah. But people are happy, but people who write in Rust are happy, which is just, I think it's a testament to the language. And probably after I learned Go, I might learn Rust just to see what it's all about. I've done like some hello worlds in Rust and some basic if statements and like, loops made a method or two. Yeah. And the Rust compiler, I don't think it has, I don't know, um, you might have to fact check me, Chidalu. I don't think it has garbage collection. I don't think it's memory managed, but 
the go the go language has a pretty good garbage collector that's constantly being improved um so the last two languages we want to talk about are objective c and swift and me and shadalu honestly don't know anything about these languages we just know that they're used to yeah. make ios apps because me and shadalu are both uh, linux windows people so um we haven't really made any ios apps with swift oh, really? or objective c oh, really? we would love to actually do we know anybody that has made ios apps like that i don't think we even know any so if that's not yeah, a whole, that's a whole we were at me and Chidalu were at a hackathon uh, probably a couple months ago uh yeah. we wanted to we were looking into we were exploring things to do with alternate reality uh with um ar and vr with our mobile phones and since me and Chidalu both have iphones we were looking to do it with uh, ios and react native we were talking about it we were trying to make a react native app an alternate reality react native app we found this great um, framework, tool chain, kind of piece of software called Vero React Native. We'll list it in the show notes. And it's basically a framework built off, like a spin-off off React Native. It builds on React Native, where it allows the developer to make VR, AR apps. But the problem with that is, is that we're not writing Swift and we're not writing Objective-C. So for example, like when you're doing object detection in VR and AR, which is very important and rendering and all of that, we just can't get under the hood and write any of that swift, which really leads to weaker AR and VR apps. So if you're really looking into making an iOS application, I would highly recommend probably getting a Mac or getting a, making a, a Hackintosh. Yeah. I'm going to just apologize to all the iOS developers right now. I just don't understand. I have <laughs> never written an iOS app before. I'm sorry. My ignorance, please. Uh, I apologize for it. Anyways, to end off our episode, we're going to kind of go through yeah. some online resources. For example, the Stack Overflow Developer Survey. And just look at some interesting insights on what popular languages people in industry use. Some of the most popular languages in 2019... Like, I'll just talk about the top five. Those are the big five here. We've talked about them extensively in this podcast was, you know, JavaScript, HTML, SQL for database management, Python for, you know, high level general programming and Java too. Those are the top five languages of the Stack Overflow 2019 survey that were most, you know, most popular for, you know, programming and, and scripting. And JavaScript has stayed at the top of that list for seven years. And Python has just, you know, surpassed Java in popularity. I think what companies are doing is that most companies, Enterprise, especially yeah, definitely. business oriented companies used to have a full Java JVM stack yep. and they're kind of breaking it down, rebuilding it, you know, with microservice architecture and doing in different languages like Go and Python, where just writing microservices are just a lot easier. And for, for you guys who yeah. want to make money in the future, you guys are money chasers. The top <laughs> top paying technologies, I'll just talk about the United States because that's where I guess most of our listeners will be <laughs> living in. Top paying technologies, like the top five of the year of 2019 were Scala, Clojure, which we'll maybe talk about another episode, Go, Erlang, Objective-C. We talked about Jack. We didn't talk about any of those languages. We didn't yeah, talk about Scala. We didn't talk about Erlang. We talked about Go. Year. And the ranges are not too vast. I mean, Python is 
ranging in the United States about 116k and Scala is 143. I guess that's pretty vast. But yeah, Go is definitely on the rise, and more industries that were using C before are learning to use Go for their um, systems, you know, engineering. And um, yeah, those are pretty much some of the biggest um, statistics of 2019 from the Stack Overflow survey. So I have a pretty cool link. It's a pretty cool website called LibHunt. Okay. Now LibHunt, we'll link it in the in the show notes. Of course, the show notes are hosted on GitHub. Go check it out. And it has a it's basically a web repository of amazing things that people have written in certain languages. So if you search on GitHub, awesome dash and a language, for example, awesome dash C++, awesome dash go, awesome dash Python, you can see a lot of great libraries, great projects that people have written in those languages and just kind of get a feel for what's kind of possible in that language. For example, I'm on LibHunt right now. I just clicked awesome go and you're seeing things that people have made with audio and music authentication software, uh, Discord bots, um, people have made databases in Go, email software, uh, they've made package management software, they've made version control, video editing software, a whole bunch of web frameworks. And there's so many different things that showcase the, the diversity of Go, for example. Now there's, a, this is a repository for almost every other language. For example, we have Android, Elixir. We didn't talk about Elixir. Uh, iOS, Kotlin, PHP. <laughs> is, I don't think something we're ever gonna talk about. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We, really we, like I can't say we have enough experience to be talking about PHP. I don't, know. I don't think we're gonna talk about PHP <laughs> that much. We don't have enough experience to talk about PHP. Anyways, <laughs> um, they have awesome Ruby, awesome JavaScript, awesome React. For some reason, it's its own repository, which just shows how big React is in the software development world. It's one of the most wanted JavaScript skills, I feel, especially when me and Chidali were looking at, you know, a lot of job postings, React is a, is a very much Definitely. asked skill in the job, in a JavaScript stack or a JavaScript role. That's my uh, little link that I wanted to share. Anyways, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for the show notes, they'll always be in the description. Hit us up on Twitter if you have any feedback, because I know we can use it. Thanks for listening to Amateur Hour. Mm-hmm.